Lord Jesus, we declare together that you are high and lifted up in this place. We declare together that you are high and lifted up over each and every one of our lives. We declare that you are God and you are King and we bow the knee before you. God, we want to thank you that there is a coming day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord and you are God and you will receive the recognition, you will receive the worship that you are due. But God, as a foretaste of that, we want to bow the knee right now. We declare that you are God. We love you, Lord. We declare that you rule over all things in heaven and on earth. And we submit ourselves to you. God, right now we just submit ourselves to your word. And we just pray, Lord, that as we we come before you, that you would speak into each and every one of our hearts and into each and every one of our lives. That we would see something more of who you are. And that we would be changed because of it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Brilliant. Well, morning, everybody. Great to see you. Everybody doing well? Yeah? Good? You've not really got an awful lot of choices to what you say when I ask a crowd of you. You can't really start telling me all your problems, but um, yeah, we'll chat later. Um, okay, so we've spent the last few weeks, haven't we, um, as uh, uh, going through looking at the vision of the church, what it is that we're about, what our mission is, where it is that we're heading Um, And last week then, John began um, a new series which we're calling The Family DNA, which should pop up here on the screen for you um, as well. The Family DNA then is about the way in which we're going to get to that destination. It's about how we want to be as a church and what it is that we value, what it is that we consider to be important, what it is that we're unwilling to compromise on, what it is that makes us who we are. You know, as a group of leaders, the the pastors across um, Light and Life, across Cornwall, um, we came together over a period of time over the last kind of, um, well, it was all finished a little while ago, but it took up about a a year or so, um, to try and define what is our DNA. What is the the DNA of Light and Life um, churches? And we came up with three main headings that John introduced last week, which are the, the three core values, to love God, to love his people, or to love the church, and to love his world. And each of those three headings then is, is broken down into a number of different points to explain what it is we really mean by them, because they're pretty broad headings on their own. And if you want to find out more about um, each one of those things and how they're broken down, you can go on the website, um, which uh, Steve's puts together, and you'll, you'll find all of the values and things on there, and, and explanations and Bible verses and things all tied in with that. Um, but over the next few weeks, John and I want to take each of these headings and the different points um, beneath them and just unpack something of, of what that really means for us as a church. So the first of the three core values that we're going to spend some time looking at is what it really means to love God. Um, and that's, you see, that's broken down into three key points. So the first point is that it means we are to be God-centered. The second is that we are to be spirit-led and biblically anchored. And then the last, the third one is that we are to be faith-filled. And last week, John spoke about what it was to be a faith-filled people. To be a people who put our trust in God and are willing to take steps of obedient faith as an expression of our love for him. You know, this week then, I'm going to be looking at the first point. What it means to be God-centered. What it means to be a people who are God-centered. And it probably sounds really simple, doesn't it? 
It's a, a very simple statement to be God-centered. But what it is that we actually center our lives on, what it is that we focus our lives on, what it is that we chase after and we pursue is really a demonstration of what it is that we value most, of what it is that we love most and we consider to be of the greatest importance. So what have you placed at the center of your life? What is it that is at the center of your life, of your heart? Now, I think we can get a pretty good idea of, um, of what the marketing industry believes is at the center of most people's lives and in most people's hearts simply by watching a few adverts. And we'll see for a moment how well marketing works if it's stuck in your mind. If I was to say to you, um, L'Oreal, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Because you're worth it. Well done. I'm sure we could keep going with a, a, a few more. Why don't we watch though, a quick video which sums up Something of the approach of the marketing industry. The customer is king. I am king. I don't know how you react to that video. I don't know if it's something you relate to or not. If you managed to pick out all the different adverts and their slogans that he threw together in there and, and linked all in. But the marketing industry only uses that kind of advertising because it works. That's the truth of it, isn't it? They wouldn't do it otherwise. They use it because they know that people want to feel good about themselves. They know that people want to feel like they are important and that they're worth it. They will know that people want to have everything and desire to to be at the center of their own life, of their own little universe. You know, in their own lives, people want to be king. You know, there's a natural tendency within every single one of us to put ourselves at the center and view everything else according to whether or not it's going to make us happy or give us what we want or not. You know, there's a natural tendency within every single one of us to become centered on and focused on ourselves. And, but it doesn't just show itself through that, that desire for possessions and, and comfort and entertainment and the kind of things that we saw in, in the advert and the videos. Now, I wonder how many of you have been uh, hit with some kind of cold or fluey thing um, over the last few weeks or over winter. Just put your hand up for a moment if you've, if you've had something like that. Yeah, I feel for you. I have sympathy for you. Um, this last week, it's been my turn, so you can, you can have sympathy for me too. And I thought I'd managed to avoid it all. Um, but then it began, it began as a little bit of a sniffle um, about a week or so ago, and then it slowly uh, developed until midweek. We were there with the, the high temperature, the chesty cough, the, you know, the headaches, the aches, the pains, the, the, the works, the full-on man flu. And um, it's a lot worse than you ladies get it, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, I say that, I wrote it at home in bed. So. <laughs> now, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm feeling pretty rough, when I'm feeling poorly, I have one thing that I like to do when I'm feeling a little bit low. I have a very special jumper. It's a little bit too big for me. It's all fleecy inside and it's got this lovely hood. And what I like to do when I'm feeling a little bit rough and poorly and low and down on myself is I get my jumper out, I put it on, I pull the hood up, put my hands in the pockets and just kind of snuggle down, all indulgent, comfort, retreat into myself. I make myself the center of my own little universe. You know, it might be that chasing after comfort or possessions or an easy life isn't something that's an issue for us. But it's amazing how easy it is when we start to feel poorly or when problems come along 
that we suddenly find ourselves at the center. We become focused on ourselves, on how we feel, on the problems we're facing, on the things we don't have but that we want. And we think, woe is me, it's not fair. And everything else starts to revolve around us. You know, there's so many different ways that we can find that we've placed ourselves, our problems, our hopes and our dreams, our desires, our comfort, our entertainment, our reputation and our pride at the center of our lives. And when we do that, without even realizing it, we're making a statement that I am king in my life. I am Lord in my life. I come first in my life. And everything else is secondary and revolves around me. You know, just as we can live life like everything um, revolves around us, about 450 years ago, everybody believed that the sun and the planets all revolved around the earth. And then in uh, 1543, Copernicus um, said that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. And then about 50 years later, Galileo said that actually the earth and the planets revolved around the sun. And do you know what happened? Scientists were so appalled by the idea that we were not the center of the universe that they threw him in prison. The idea that we were not the center of the universe was unthinkable. You know, this morning I want you to honestly ask yourself, what is at the center of your life? What are you focused on? Have you put yourself at the center of a particular problem or a particular hope and dream and desire that you're working towards at the center and making everything about that, every decision that you make, the way that you go about things, all tailored around it? Now, if that's the case, then just as there's been a shift in our understanding to know that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around, we need that same kind of shift. We need to make a decision to have a shift to accept the truth that our lives need to be God-centered and everything else needs to revolve around him. One of the reasons that scientists used to think that the sun revolved around the earth is because when you look up in the sky... It's pretty small, isn't it? It's not that big a thing, and, and you can watch it. it. It kind of goes from the left over to the right, and you know, it, it looks like it's a small thing going around this big, huge earth that we're standing on and that we're living on, and, and it just makes sense, doesn't it? You look up in the sky, and, that, and that's what makes sense. What they didn't realize is that the truth is that the sun is so much bigger than the earth that actually you could fit about 1.3 million earths inside of it. The scale doesn't even begin to, in comparison, does it? You know, and in the same way, the way that we feel and the circumstances we face, the hopes and dreams that we have, the problems that are right in front of us can seem pretty huge. They can seem all-consuming and all that matters because they're right in front of our face. And suddenly, if we're not careful, we find that we put ourselves at the center of our lives. And even though we wouldn't ever say it, by the decisions that we make, by the way that we act, we show that subconsciously we view God as secondary. We can almost end up thinking that God is there to serve us, 
to help us in our problems and to give us the things that we want. You know, we know that he has promised to help us in our times of need. We know that he promises that he loves us and that he cares for us and that he's there for us. We know that he's promised to give us good things. We know that he was willing to die for us because he loved us so much so that we could be saved and have relationship with him. And all of that is fantastically and incredibly true and something we never need to lose sight of. But if we're not careful, each one of those things ends up coming back to us, to me. And we keep putting ourselves back at the center. You know, and just as the scientists of the 1500s needed to realize just how big the sun was in order to put things in perspective, the starting point for living God-centered lives is to be captivated by a vision of just how big God is. Of the greatness of God, of the awesomeness of God. And when we see something more of who God is, then we realize how awesome he is and it puts everything else into perspective. And we're going to um, read uh, about a, a man's experience to help us grasp something of the greatness of God and the way in which when we encounter God, it changes everything. And the man we're going to read about is a man called Isaiah. Uh, he was a man who followed God and served him and declared God's message to the people of Israel. But there was a point in Isaiah's life when the king of Israel, King Uzziah, died. And um, anyone who knows the story of, of, of Israel knows that when Israel has a good king who follows God and serves God, everything goes well. Israel prospers. Things are great. When they have a bad thing, everything falls apart. And Uzziah was one of the best kings that Israel ever had after David. And Israel did great with him. They prospered. They defeated their enemies. They expanded their territory. It was a good time for Israel. And then he died. And you can imagine Isaiah grieving his death and wondering what next? What does the future hold? How are things going to be for us when we don't have a king? What's the next king going to be like? Will he serve God or not? And in the midst of this, that situation, this is what we read happens in Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. So in a time when Isaiah was worried about Israel being without a king, God doesn't come along and comfort him and say, it's okay. He says, I'm king. I'm king. He shows himself as the king on the throne, ruling over everything and completely changes Isaiah's perspective. No longer is he filled with, with fear at the lack of a king to guide them or protect them or help them as a nation because he sees that his king is high and exalted, seated on the throne in heaven with authority over all things. And he realizes immediately that he doesn't need to worry about not having a king to rule or guide or protect him because God is their king. What happens next? It goes on, it says, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. That's not the voice of God. 
That's just the voice of the seraphim. These angelic beings above the throne. These aren't little chubby winged angels. They're angelic beings of power and majesty. And yet these incredible beings don't feel worthy to look upon God. They cover their eyes with their wings. They don't feel worthy to have their feet uncovered in his presence. These are powerful, glorious beings, untainted by sin. And yet they still recognize God as their king and have such humility before him. You know, we read throughout the Bible about when angels appear to people and how how people's first reaction is to fall down afraid before them because they're so glorious. And if that's the case, how much more should we be in awe of the God who made them and who they cower before? Who they hide their faces in front of because it's so glorious they just can't bring themselves to look. They honor and revere him. So having seen and heard the seraphim, we come back to Isaiah in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And when Isaiah has this vision of God, it changes everything. When Isaiah has this vision of God and realizes just how awesome God is and how holy God is, he suddenly sees himself completely differently. He can't escape the truth that he is a sinful man who has made so many mistakes that he is deserving of nothing. And he falls down in front of God saying, woe is me. I can't go on as I am. You know, when Isaiah sees God, it very quickly puts him in his place. Most of you probably have uh, children either grown up or maybe still little ones like mine. But I'm sure all of you then who've had children will have had those moments when for some reason your child seems to forget who the parent is and who the child is. They seem to forget who is in charge. And they need to be put in their place. Every uh, couple of months, Evan seems to go through this cycle where he seems to decide, maybe now I can be in charge. Maybe now I can decide what's right and wrong for me and for Simon and tell Simon what to do and explain things to him instead of my mum and dad needing to do it. And we go through a few difficult days of making it clear to Evan who's in charge and putting him back in his place. You know, just as our own children naturally want to take charge of their lives, they want to be king of their lives, they want to be lord in their lives, and they need to be reminded of their place and who the boss is. So we need to keep reminding of ourselves of our place before God. That left to ourselves, we have all made mistakes. We have all done things which have hurt ourselves, hurt others, and dishonored God. And that if we were to come before our great and mighty and holy God in our own right, then just like Isaiah, the right response would be to fall on our knees and say, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am ruined. 
I am a man who has made so many mistakes and now my eyes have seen God. I am not worthy to even be alive. The amazing thing is what happens next in verses 6 to 8. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, having come to a place of recognizing God for who he is and recognizing his own guilt and confessing the wrong things that he'd done, what happens next? God washes away Isaiah's guilt. He cleanses him of sin. But there's a price to pay, wasn't there? The price of a burning coal being placed upon his lips. Now, that sounds pretty painful to me. The amazing thing is that God has made that same cleansing available to us. And we don't have to have the pain. Because he's paid the price himself. You know, when you encounter God and you come to a place of realization of the mistakes that you've made and you say, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man who has lied, who has cheated. I am a man who has has held anger and lust in my heart. I am a man who has judged others. The amazing thing is that Christ died in your place for all of those things and more. That he paid the price for you to be cleansed and washed clean of your wrongdoing. And God's promise in 1 John 1 verse 9 is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's a fantastic promise, isn't it? We've got to come to that place A recognition that woe is me. Woe is me. These verses in Isaiah finish then with Isaiah's statement. Here am I. Send me. You know, having seen God for who he is, having realized uh, his own sinfulness, having been cleansed and forgiven and washed clean. He then says, God, I am yours. I place you at the center of my life. I give my life to serve you, to live for you. I give my life to fulfill your purpose for me. I don't live for myself anymore. Isaiah is saying, no longer am I king in my life. But God, you are. I declare you to be Lord. You know, and that transformation, that change in perspective all begins with the encounter with God. You know, if I could somehow supernaturally allow you to see God in all his glory for five seconds. Right now, I promise you that for those five seconds, you would not be thinking about your problems. For those five seconds, you would not be thinking about your hopes and your dreams and what it is you want to achieve. You wouldn't be thinking about your favorite TV program or what people have written on Facebook. You wouldn't be thinking about the new thing you want to buy for your house. You wouldn't be thinking about anything else. In fact, I don't think you'd be thinking about any of those kind of things for a lot longer than just five seconds. When you encounter God, everything changes. Everything is put into perspective. And you see things for what they really are. When you encounter God, it changes everything. 
That's my hope and my prayer for us this morning, that we would encounter God together. And that through that encounter, we would be forever changed. One of the verses in the Bible that's been a bit of a a mantra of mine for for many years is uh, Matthew 6, verse 33. So a lot of you know it. It says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. You know, essentially, keep God at the center of everything. Everything you do, every decision that you make, you know, it's a commitment that in every situation, in every circumstance, whatever it is you are going through, whatever it is you are facing, you are going to put God first. Think about and prioritize what he wants for you more than what you want for you. You know, and I know from my own experience, though, that while that's been a mantra of mine and while it's been something that I've held onto and while it's been a commitment that I've regularly made to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, that when we declare Jesus Lord of our lives and place him at the center of our lives, there are still a whole bunch of distractions and temptations and things which can pull at us and suddenly we find ourselves having lost that perspective again and needing to be reminded and come back to that place. It can be a real challenge to keep God at the center. And I've discovered a way of gauging how well I'm doing, how much I'm keeping God at the center and seeking him first and living for him. So I'm going to share it with you, um, how much it is I've been caught up in myself. And it's something I've I've taken from one of our leaders of a church that I was in in Manchester, so I'm not going to claim any credit for it. But this is what he says. Whether you like it or not is up to you. But I think it's true. He says this. Here's a simple test to help you discover what you truly seek in life. This test is absolutely foolproof. You tell me how you spend your time and money, and I'll tell you what you're seeking. Your time and your money don't lie. Show me your calendar, show me your bank statement, and I will show you your priorities. Show me your calendar, show me your bank statement, and I will show you your priorities. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? But I think it's true. If you want to understand what your real priorities are, what is at the center of your life, have a look at your bank statement and what you're spending your money on. What it is that you budget for first. Have a look at your calendar and where you spend your time. The reality is that for all of us, time and money are limited. They're a finite resource. And so we all have to make decisions as to what it is we're going to prioritize with them. What it is that is of such value that it is worthy of that slot in our diary. That it is worthy of that money that we've worked for. And if we want to demonstrate our love for God by putting him at the center of our lives, then they're the places we need to start to show him that he is of greatest value to us. So I want to just finish by talking about a a couple of different things that I think we can do to help us to to prioritize God. Um, Different, you know, kind of principles to help us to to use our, our diary and to use our bank accounts to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Simple things, but such important things. So the first key foundation to make sure is in place is very simply time with God. If you are seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, his rule in your life, 
then you need to take some time at the start of every day with God to know what it is he wants for you in that day. To take time at the start of the day to be centered on him and ensure that your day is going to be spent worshipping him. Centered upon him. Honoring him. It's simple. And I know it's simple. But I also know how easy it is to put off time with God. Until later in the day. And then the reality is that the busyness and the little things and the jobs and the phone calls and the different things going on and the distractions and your favorite TV program and everything else begin to crowd it out. And before you know, God is lost from the midst of your day. One of the best decisions you can make to put God at the center of your life is to start every day with time with him. Time in his word and time in prayer. It might be that you're not a morning person. And you plan to spend a greater amount of time with God later in the day. That's fine. That's great. But don't miss that moment at the start of the day to focus on him. To declare him as Lord. To declare him as King. To to give him your day. To give him your life. To wait on him and to allow him to speak to you about what it is that he has for you in that day. Because if you don't, it's amazing how quickly the distractions and the busyness of life will surround you. And you'll find that your work, your family, your problems, even just your own entertainment, ends up at the center of that day instead of God. Second foundation to make sure is in place, again, sticking with the calendar, is time with other Christians. For you to make the decision to prioritize getting together with and gathering with the people of God, people who love God, people who will encourage you and stir you up to love him more, to honor him, to make him the center of your life. And the fact that you were all here this morning and prioritized being here above doing other things is fantastic. And is a great demonstration of the fact that that's something that you value and that you want to do. And it's brilliant. I'm sure many of you will have have, um, heard before the, the illustration of the cult. And, but I think it's so true that each one of us is like a coal. And when you, you, you place us in, into a fire with the other coals, we, we quickly catch hold of the heat and we glow. And we have the same passion of the other coals. But as soon as you take it out and you place it on the hearth, it grows black and cold very quickly. The reality is that we all need time with other Christians to keep ourselves focused on God, to keep ourselves God-centered focused on worshipping him. It's great to gather together on a Sunday, but I want to encourage you to make the most of every opportunity. Every opportunity you have with friends. You know, have people around for meals. Share together. In your conversations, don't let them just be inane. Talk about God. Encourage one another. Stir one another up. If you're not already, get involved with a growth group or a momentum group. Build relationally with one another in a way which encourages you to keep God at the center of your life. The third foundation then to make sure is in place if we want our lives to be centered on God and we're moving on to the bank account is tithing. You know, there are lots of different things that we can do with our money, things that we can save up for, things that we can buy immediately, things that we can seek after and pursue. But just as how we use our time is a demonstration of what it is that we value most and we prioritize and we think is important, so the way that we use our money shows what is most valuable to us. 
You know, one of the best ways of combating a natural desire to have yourself at the center of your life is to tithe. It's to give your money first and foremost to God as an act of worship, as a way of showing God that you are living for him, that he is more important to you than anything else, that all that you have is his. You know, in the Old Testament, they gave 10% to go towards the priests and running of the temple, and most people are already aware of that, but as as you read through the the law, you find out they gave another 10% to go towards festivals so that they could gather together and celebrate the goodness and greatness of God and what it is that he had done amongst them. They gave another 3.3% to go towards the poor. And even after they'd done all of that, they had a bunch of other one-off offerings for building projects and different things that were happening uh, and opportunities for people to give. And then when we come to the New Testament, it's all blown out of the water. Suddenly, there's no, not these requirements of set percentages to give. It's a free will offering with a command give Everything. Everything. All that you can. Now when you think about budgeting, when you think about your money, what is it that you put into your budget first? What you put into the budget first and prioritize with your money is a reflection of what it is that you are centered on. What it is that you value most. What it is you consider to be of the greatest importance. You know, when we prioritize God with our time and we prioritize God with our money, it is an act of worship that places him at the center of our lives. Now, obviously, there's loads of things we could talk about. You know, it's not an exhaustive three-point thing. If you do this, you're sorted. God's at the center. Everything is great. They're three of the most important things that I think we all need to to make sure we're doing so, so that God's at the center of our lives. But essentially... All of them are simply ways of coming before God and saying, you are king. You are Lord and I surrender. I give up my right to be king of my life. I give up my place at the center of my life. And I declare that I'm living for you. It might be that your way of surrendering to God is to commit yourself to prioritizing time um, with him every day at the start of every day. And that you realize that that's something that you've, you've not been doing and you want to change. It might be that you know, your, your way of surrendering to God is to commit yourself to time with other Christians and to join a growth group or a momentum group or something like that. It might be that it's to commit to increase your giving or to start giving at all. But equally, it might be something completely different. It might be that you want to commit to um, regularly fasting and saying to God, God, you're of greater value to me than what it is that I'm giving up. I would rather miss a meal so that I can spend time in your presence in prayer with you. Because that is so much more satisfying. That brings me so much more life. I would rather miss my favorite TV program to spend time with you because you are so much more valuable to me. It might be that you want to do something else entirely. But whatever it is, make a decision. Choose something that you are going to do to say to God... You matter to me more than anything. You are my king, and I surrender. That's what matters that each one of us comes to that place where, like Isaiah, we recognize God for who he really is. The awesome and mighty king over all the earth. We see ourselves for who we really are. And we fall on our knees and give him everything. 
We say, God, here I am, send me. Here I am, have your way with me. Here I am, I give my life to you for your purposes. Declare you a Lord and King. Place God at the center of my life. And we're going to finish in, this, in a second. I'm going to ask the band if they wouldn't just mind coming up so that they're ready to lead us in a moment. And we're going to finish by, by declaring the greatness of God. But I wanted to, to take a minute before that, a minute of quiet. You know, it can be so easy for us sometimes to rush into God's presence with loads of words. And, and we come to him with prayers and we come to him with songs and we, we just want to say all this different stuff to him. And we fill that time. And I think sometimes God just wants us to simply stop. To fix our eyes on him. To realize who it is that we have the awesome privilege of standing before. Who it is that we have the awesome privilege of praying to and hearing our prayers and hearing speak to us. Who it is that we have the awesome privilege of worshiping this morning in song. And to know that when we encounter God, when we see him for who he is, the chances are that we won't have loads of words. We'll be lost for words in awe of our creator. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to have a, a minute's quiet. And um, I want to encourage you not to use any words, not to just start babbling on to God about whatever it is, but just to focus on him. Feel free to stand, sit, kneel, however you want, just to allow yourself to be in that.